Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. My name is Karen, and it is my absolute joy and my privilege to speak to you this morning as part of the team who are preaching over the next couple of months. We've started a new series on one particular book in the Bible. It's called Ephesians, and I'm going to be talking on Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14, if you want to start checking that out. It's a letter probably written by the Apostle Paul to a group of young churches, households, or small congregations scattered across a wide area in what is now Turkey, and it was probably written about 20 or so years after Jesus. One way to summarize its message would be to say that it is a community's guide for understanding and responding to the crucified and resurrected King Jesus. But before we go any further, I want you to think about your favorite musical. Yes, your favorite musical. Perhaps you don't have a favorite musical, but I bet you can think of a moment in a movie, maybe, a favorite song or a piece of music that means something to you. Or perhaps if you prefer football, maybe you'll never walk alone, Blue Moon, or even I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Maybe you find them particularly meaningful. But if I hold up the small toy lion cub right now, what would it remind you of? Lion King. And if I mentioned the sharks and the jets, I'm pretty sure most of you would know what I was talking about. West Side Story? Maybe it's for those of us with more vintage years. But if I started singing about frozen fractals all around, I'm pretty sure most of you would join in, right? Ooh, you're a bit. Maybe they're a bit more enthusiastic about frozen at Battersea or West Side. <laughs> Usually, it is the grand finale that engages us in that way. It's that moment when all the surviving characters come together in celebration. And they look back at the journey that they've been on and the history that they've shared. And in a musical, it's normally the grand finale that draws people to their feet in a standing ovation. But that is how this letter begins. In fact, Paul gets so carried away with what he's telling us about the activity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what that means for us, that he's practically singing these phrases as his exuberance spills off the page in an extraordinary outpouring of extravagant poetry and praise. The 12 verses that we're going to look at this morning are actually one long sentence in the original Greek. 202 words without punctuation. What a nightmare Grammarly would have with that. But what we'll hear is a song of praise, a statement of truth, and a story of redemption. So let's zoom in on just a couple of words or phrases that are likely to come up again and again in this series. If this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, it's from a man who has effectively lived two lives. One of religious education and devotion that ended up looking more like violent fundamentalism 
and the other of a faith transformed, which put his own life at risk on more than one occasion. He has preached before great crowds. He has caused riots. He has planted many churches. He has seen great miracles. But he has been arrested, he has been beaten, and he has been shipwrecked. And now he is in prison again, possibly in Rome, in which case that's described in Acts 28, where he spends about two years awaiting trial, teaching all who come to visit him about the kingdom of God. Wherever he is right now, he is a prisoner. So if we could see Paul, he would not look blessed. His time and place and resources are limited, just like ours. And yet, the first thing he does is draw our attention to another reality. We begin in verse 3 with a blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Three times in this sentence, Paul uses a variation of the Greek word from which we get our word eulogy, which means to speak well of someone, or the word Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Paul uses it here as an adjective, a noun, and a verb. Simply put, he might have said, the blessed God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. But we can tell Paul is tripping over himself here tripping over himself to speak of God's generous, abundant goodness, a fullness of being that is rich in love and grace and power and worthy of our praise. And unwilling to keep this goodness to himself, God acts from a place of super abundance. Paul may be in prison at the mercy of the Roman Empire, but his perception of life is informed by another reality. His confidence is in a God who is rich in love and at work in history. Paul believes that the resources that God gives are straight from heaven. They are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But he does not believe they are someplace else and they are not fairy dust. This opening passage is about who God is and what he has done on a grand scale. It is about history and humanity and the people of God. So let's take a closer look at some of these blessings. One of the first things that God has done is chosen a people for himself. And Paul writes about this in verses 4 and 11 as one of the blessings that we have received. He writes that we have been chosen. Chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, we have been predestined for adoption. Paul knew what it was to be chosen as a particular people for a particular purpose. He knew the Exodus story of how his people, the Jews, had been rescued and redeemed from slavery in Egypt. These are the words of Moses written in Deuteronomy 7 after that event. For you are a people holy to your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. 
Paul may or may not have been thinking of these words when he was writing this passage, but he knows this story. It is in his bones. But now he's come to believe it's taken an unexpected twist. Paul's extraordinary message to both Jews and non-Jews, insiders and outsiders, is that this story has been opened up to everyone. The word adoption that Paul uses here is the same term that refers to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. It speaks of inclusion and of inheritance for those who were formerly outside the family. And it requires a change of identity and purpose. And Paul wants all of those who are listening to this letter gathered in their households and their congregations, whether they are Jews or Gentiles, men or women, slaves or free, to know that they are included as equals, just as we are, in one holy family. And it is holiness that characterizes this family. Paul will explain all the practicalities of that later on in this letter, but first he wants us to grasp what it is that God has done. So let's talk a little bit about grace. Paul writes in verse 6 of God's glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He writes that in we have redemption through God's blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. We see here that grace is glorious and freely given from an abundant supply described as riches. Elsewhere in Paul's writing, we see that grace is a gift of undeserved favor. Paul uses the word grace a lot in his letters and in different ways. And we'll hear more about this later in the series. But Paul's talking here about grace as an activity, something at work in us before we even came to know it. And as a generous energy within us, like a powerful, life-giving, life-changing force, like a stream that never runs dry. John Stott described grace as God's free saving initiative. And Dallas Willard wrote, grace is God acting in our lives to do things we can't do on our own. You see, grace is both the invitation and the enabling for us to participate in what God is up to, to get us in on this redemption story. So let's take a closer look at this word redemption that Paul writes about in verse 7. He says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with God's grace. But there was one sacrifice that was associated with remembrance. Once a year at Passover, the Jewish people would kill and eat a lamb and remember the escape from Egypt when the doorposts of their homes were marked with the blood of a lamb and the angel of death would pass over them and they would escape their captivity. During Jesus' final Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper, he uses this imagery of sacrifice for himself. As part of that meal, he gives his disciples a cup of wine, which would have represented freedom for them. And he declares to them, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this 
in remembrance of me. That first redemption story was about God going to Egypt to deliver his people, that he might establish a place on earth where he might reign with them and make himself known to the nations through them. Their expectation was that God would come again with a new exodus, a renewal of his covenant, a new temple, national forgiveness, the end of foreign rule, and a new era of justice and peace. That was Paul's expectation too. But now he reads his scriptures differently. To this story, Paul adds a new chapter of God unveiling his age-old plan through Jesus, who had come to deliver all people to establish his kingdom within us and to be revealed to the world through us. Here and now, in Christ, Paul believed this new era had begun. So for Paul, these may be spiritual blessings, but he believed that this was a kingdom-coming, world-changing, history-making, redemption story for the whole world. And it was an invitation to join God in the renewal of all things. And at the center of this epic story are two little words that Paul uses over and over again. And these words are in Christ. Christ was one of the words that Paul uses most often for Jesus. It means anointed or chosen one in Greek and can be translated from the Hebrew Messiah. In this whole passage, we see that this little phrase is the foundation from which all the other blessings flow. In verse 3, we read that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But we are also chosen in Christ. We have been lavished with grace in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. But we significantly miss the point if we think of this merely as a list or the location of a few heavenly trinkets. Paul believed that the long-hoped-for reign of God had begun in the person of Jesus in Christ. So that when Jesus announced the kingdom of God is here, a new era had begun. And now he, Paul, a former persecuted of Jesus' first followers, is now united with the Messiah. So that everything Jesus accomplished and intended is accessible and at work in him, right where he is, even under the worst possible circumstances. So this is why Paul can endure the hardships he faces, why he can write this under arrest, where his options are limited, his resources are few, and his sense of agency has been taken from him, because he is fully aware of his everyday reality. But he is deeply rooted in this story and in who he is in Christ. The heavenly realms he speaks of, the spiritual blessings he writes of, are not someplace else. Whatever his circumstances and all that God is and has and does is right there with him in that place. And being in Christ is how Paul describes every follower of Jesus. We may be more familiar with the language of discipleship, which is all good, of course, and thoroughly biblical, but it's too easy for us to reduce that 
to a spiritual self-help program for our own personal salvation with free entry into heaven when we die. Paul is thinking of something so completely different. He's thinking of lives changed, consumed, transformed, enveloped, and embraced by what God has done and what he is doing through adoption into a new family with Christ at the center. And just as an arm and leg are useless without a body attached to it, Paul has no comprehension of the kind of spiritual life detached from the people of God, which is described as the body of Christ. To be in Christ means to be part of his church. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. The Ephesian message is intended to gather us into the multifaceted, all-encompassing work of Christ, in which we will become whole, healthy, complete men and women. None of us is the body in and of ourselves. We are an integral part of the body, of which the head is Christ. I hope you've experienced this. By the grace of God, many of us have found wholeness and health in the company of one another. We've experienced the love and power of God through the care and the attention of the church. But it's not always like that, is it? Sometimes it can also cause us deep pain, anger, and grief. I've experienced that, and I think Paul has. And it's okay to feel that way, too. But perhaps it's at those times especially that we need to be reminded that the church is so much bigger and more beautiful than we can imagine. For Paul, it is not an all-conquering, smooth-operating, power-wielding corporation of shiny, happy people. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, worshipping community that loves and serves one another for the sake of the world. It is a holy family, transformed by the presence of God, living radically counter-cultural lives, deeply rooted in Christ and in the times in which we live. That brings us to the very end of this passage as we speak about the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, Paul writes, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This passage ends with a wonderful description of the work of the Holy Spirit, who is not just another blessing or an optional extra, but the means by which we experience everything else. The Holy Spirit is the all the richer for it. Paul is making some huge theological statements, and he's told us this epic story. And he's put it together like a song, because our only response to this is worship. In the midst of our daily lives, our very real circumstances, with their challenges and limitations, God, in his grace, is drawing us into what he is doing. And we find that what God is doing is not just in here, shrunk to the size of my perception, or out there in a distant galaxy somewhere, but in Christ, in who he is, in what he has done, 
and in what he is doing now. And I find that by his grace, I am united with him and all of you. Whatever our backgrounds, whatever our differences, we are chosen in Christ. We have redemption in Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We have grace in Christ. We are marked by the Holy Spirit in Christ. And we are included in Christ, in all that God has done and will do. In Christ, we belong to a family that has been set apart to love and serve one another for the sake of the world. And our response to it all is worship. To bless God with our lips and with our lives. To bear witness to what he has done. I'd like us to consider that at the moment, our world has very little to offer in terms of peace and justice. It has very little to offer in terms of redeeming grace or transforming power. It seems to have very little to offer in terms of hope or healing. But you and I know different. We know different. It is this truth that defines our identity and our purpose. And I want to end with this. Lynn Kohick, in her commentary on Ephesians, writes, We have a purpose, divinely given and divinely empowered, to function as God's agents of goodness in the world. You could say that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.